This is The Shift Podcast. Today on The Shift Daily Podcast, a Canadian professor found the doodles of King Henry VIII. Micheline White, who teaches English literature at Carleton University, tells us about her incredible discovery and gives us never-before-seen insight into the minds of one of history's most infamous monarchs. Hackers are taking advantage of the wildfire situations across Canada. Hank the Hacker has tips on how to stay safe and how to avoid their scams. And are you okay with Fire Festival and Double Doubles? It's all in the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Off with his head. Famous saying, right, Alice in Wonderland? We've heard it many times. Well, there was a dude way back in time that was very good at saying those words. And um, turns out he was quite a doodler. There's an article that we can't share online for you anymore. We'll see if we could find an alternative link to get for you. Um, the headline, though, is Canadian professor found King Henry VIII's doodles after 500 years. Uh, Micheline White is here, PhD, Associate Professor, Carleton in Ottawa, College of the Humanities and the Department of English, because being a, a professor and a PhD is not busy enough, you do it twice. Hi, Micheline. Hi. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming in and chatting us, uh, with us about this. I'm sure the off, the off with his head thing is uh, an old joke by now, but uh, you had asked me before we got going here how we found out about your discovery, and I just have to ask, how did you find your discovery in this? Because this is quite amazing. I'm assuming you weren't just thumbing through Indigo. No, no. So, um, yeah, it's a fun story. So I'm, a, I'm a, as you said, I'm a professor of Renaissance literature in a great books program at Carleton. And my research area has always been on women writers of the Renaissance. Um, and so for about 10 years, I've been working on Henry VIII's last wife, Catherine Parr. Mm -hmm. So some of your listeners may, if they've seen the musical Six, or uh, if they've watched the Tudors TV show, mm -hmm. they'll know that Henry VIII's last wife was Catherine Parr. And one of the things that's so unique about her is that she was a writer. So during her life, she published three different religious texts. And I'm a, you know, literature professor. And so um, I was very interested in her writing, her her own annotations in books and, and her writing. And I learned um, during the course of my research that she had had special gift copies made of her first book. Ooh. which was a, a prayer book. And I'd read that there were these deluxe gift copies. So I was very curious. I wanted to see these. What do they look like, et cetera. And I learned that there was one in a, in a library called the Wormsley Library, which is a private library. Um, it's on the Wormsley estate. And um, it's a collection that was originally, um, yeah, collected by uh, Sir Paul Getty many years ago. Anyway, so I I learned that they had a copy and they let me go see it. So I went to learn more about Catherine Parr. <laughs> and I, I wanted to know what did these gift books look like and who maybe did she give them to? Anyway, <laughs> the, the books themselves are really beautiful. So I'm sure you can already imagine it's super cool just to look at a book that was printed in 1544. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the font is a bit different and um, the layout's a bit different. 
I wouldn't want but, to touch it. Like, how do you, like, you don't want to break it. You don't want like everything. I mean, everything about yeah. it is, I would, oh, that's amazing. Yeah. You have to, obviously you wash your hands very carefully. Before yeah, you no go kidding. <laughs> right. Sign um, a, sign some sort of insurance policy, all the things. Yeah. Um, and I had, I, I was on sabbatical, so I was looking at a lot of rare books at the British Library. And so I had seen the regular printed copies of this book, the regular ones printed on paper. Um, but as soon as they brought me the, you know, the copy from the Wormsley Library, I was amazed because it's, it really is deluxe. So um, some of your viewers or listeners may be able to see there's some images online in. Mm -hmm. um, well, we article. all even share the wormsley.com estate. They've got this whole oh, sort nice. of the library. We'll share there just their website. I mean, that's a great place to start for people to see how cool this is. Before we get yeah. to the, the the King Henry the Eighth part, I'm a little fascinated by uh, the the women writing from back then. I, this is naive of me to ask, but it, it's in my mind, so I'll I'll honor it, even if it makes me sound stupid. I, it wouldn't literacy have been a problem back then in general, let alone with women in education, and were women even permitted to really write freely? that many hundreds of years ago? That is a great question. Um, absolutely. So women in general were less literate than men. Yeah, by a long shot. And um, now we're talking, when we're talking about Catherine Parr, we're talking about very elite people. So, mm. you know, her, her parents were at court. They served in the courts of Catherine of Aragon and Henry VIII. But um, you're absolutely right. I mean, it was assumed, first of all, that women don't really need to be educated because they don't have public roles, right? They can't fulfill public functions. They can't go to university. They can't be lawyers. They can't be doctors. They can't be part of government. So why do they need to be educated? Now, from a more pragmatic perspective, there were parents, you know, middle-class parents or elite parents who did educate their, their daughters in addition to their sons because you know, if you're going to, I mean, elite women ran households. And if you're going to run a household effectively, you have to know how to read and write and mm -hmm. do accounts. And well, they were like very that. much businesses, those estates back then, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Parr comes from a social class where girls are educated. She appears to have been more educated than, than many because this prayer book that I went to look at was something that she had translated from Latin into English. And so obviously she had very high yeah. Latin skills, but um, yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, so, okay. So I guess that answers that question. I mean, I, I, I my thought was, is that the pool for you to investigate uh, might be small, um, yeah, let yeah. alone from the surviving all of the eras from between now and then, uh, let alone to get into this. So when you make discovery in this, how amazing is that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is cool. Okay, so can please continue with your story. You were, you were learning about, um, you were doing some research of this book, and then what happened next? Right, so I went to look at this book, and really what I was interested in was just to kind of see it, and I had read that there was a hand-painted coat of arms on one of the pages. So I was just very intrigued by this. Anyway, I look at the book, they bring it to me, it's gorgeous. So most books that I look at are on paper, but this book was on vellum, right? So that's animal parchment, which was very popular in the Middle Ages. So most of the medieval manuscripts that still exist today are on parchment, but it was really expensive because they had to skin the animal. There was an elaborate curing process. The skin had to be scraped. So, but in the Renaissance, once, paper, regular paper that was made from linen and rags was widely available. Fancy books would sometimes still be printed on vellum, 
And it was way more expensive, but it was a sign of prestige. Mm -hmm. So you can actually, when you're touching the page, you can tell that it's vellum because one of the sides is rough, the side where the hair was on from the animal skin. So you can actually, yeah, you can actually feel a bit of the roughness. Um, And indeed, so the title page of this book, what's happened is because it's a gift, uh, Catherine Parr hired an illuminator, an artist to hand paint the title page um, with gold ink, uh, gold paint and blue and pink. So it's all very beautiful. Then you flip the page and indeed there's a coat of arms and it's Henry's coat of arms, which is so interesting, right? Because this is Catherine Parr's book that she's published. But what that symbolizes is that actually it's a crown publication. Her name is actually not on this particular book for lots of reasons that we can get into, but it's not unusual for a crown publication to be anonymous. And there's lots of evidence that she was the translator. But then, um, and all all of the opening, um, some of your listeners may be familiar in the early modern period, some of the first, the first word that was printed on a page often had a really big letter. It's called yeah. a drop cap. You sometimes still see it today on websites. Yeah, it's like the fancy. First, yeah, it's a fancy first letter. Those are also hand illuminated with gold. And one of them has a Tudor rose. So you can see that Henry and Catherine Parr spend a lot of time thinking about how to make this gorgeous book, which they were going to give out as gifts to people. And, um, uh, I, you know, the, but that's sort of all I went to see. And I was about to leave. Um, and I've told many people this because it's sort of amazing. I was actually about to leave. And I thought, I've come all this way before I leave. I really need to look at every page just to be sure. But I'd sort of flipped through it and hadn't really seen anything. Oh, so I just sat there systematically and looked at every page. Yeah. And it's a it's 170 pages, this book. And I got to the 60th page and I saw in the bottom uh, right-hand margin a little hand in graphite, so pencil, very faint, but pointing towards the text. And... Um, you know, what do you use in your books when to, you mark them up? Well, in today's world, I, I like yeah. sticky notes uh, is one thing. Yeah. I, I use a sticky note. Um, you know, I kind of use whatever's lying around. In fact, I had a we had a conversation with a book collector out of America where he had said that with book collecting today, now he does it for commerce. He's a very capitalist guy. Um, but he always said his discoveries from come from what he finds in books. He had found uh, somebody had used a bookmark and the book itself was a very nice book, but it wasn't really worth more than a few hundred dollars. Um, but the bookmark, I don't recall what it was specifically. It was worth tens of thousands because that's what you're speaking of. It was what they put in the book that turned out to be valuable. So yeah, so so it's neat. Like we, we put whatever I like to buy when I write my books. Um, I like to, you know, I buy the ones that have the, the little bookmark ribbon, right? Right, Those things. Like I like that stuff. And I dog your pages, which is probably not good either for the book, but. Okay. So you dog your, so you don't write little things in the margin. Uh, no, I try not to. I used to be a highlighter though. I used to go through with the highlight and be like, remember that, remember that, remember that. Cause then I could flip through and be lazy and right. And then I'll be like, oh, highlighted. What did that? Nope. Doesn't make sense. Right. Stuff like that. Yeah. So that's exactly what this is. So, I mean, people, so today we don't tend to draw, nobody I know draws little hands in the margins of their book. Although when you're walking around town, once you start looking for manicule, so the name for this is a manicule. It just means a little hand in Latin. And, um, 
you'll start noticing, you know, like come and buy ice cream and there'll be a little pointed yeah. finger, like the index finger. Right. So we don't draw those in books, but in the early, in the Renaissance, that was a common form of annotation that people were trained when they were younger to write the, make little hands in the margins of their books. Huh. Um, and if you Google, for example, you know, 16th century manicules, there are whole websites that have lots of examples of, of manicules and you'll see that they're very distinctive. So some people have a thumb, some people don't have a thumb, some people, there's even some with like five, six fingers, which makes no sense. Some of them, the finger is super long. Some of it, it's really short. They're oh, really look at that. Tops. I did yeah. what you said. I Googled it and I, I'll share this, um, I'll share this the result of just images um, from Google. And yeah, you're right. It is exactly, it's like the the parking is over here. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I caution you, some of them are particularly phallic. Yeah. Yes, there are some, they're hilarious. Um, yeah, so I saw this little manicule and then I turned the page a couple of pages later, I saw another one in the left margin. And then, you know, I found another one and another one and I found 14 in total. So there, in addition to the manicule, there's a second symbol that I found, which is um, it's got three points and then sort of a little squiggle. Some Another scholar referred to it as a tadpole. It sort of looks like a tadpole or it could be called a trefoil. Again, lots of people made this marking in, in books. So it's sort of like three points and then kind of a squiggle. Um, so I was just, so I was so excited, but what made it more exciting was that because I had been working on Parr and the thing I was most interested in about Parr's religious writing was how does it align with Henry's religious policies? I was yeah. trying to figure out that. Well, Henry's whole Catholic Church of England thing really was the crossroads in history, such an impactful uh, thing. Yeah. Like he, he killed some, I don't know if they were monks at the time or, or Oh yeah, the religious servants or whatever they were, but they were like, if you they didn't convert from being Catholic to Church yeah. of England, it was again off with your head. Yeah, yeah, off with your head, and he had people disemboweled, Ugh. drawn and quartered. It's horrible. Grouchy. Um, so because I was so interested in in figuring out how Parr's writing aligned with Henry's vacillating religious policies, I had actually that week been looking at Henry's marginalia, his annotations in other books at the British Library. So when I saw these ones in the Wormsley book, I immediately thought those really look like Henry's just because I was, that's what I was doing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was speechless. I mean, I thought, you know, I came here to look at Catherine Parr's book to figure out maybe who she gave it to as a gift. And then I think I figured out that she gave it to Henry and he wrote in it. Micheline White is at Carleton University. She found a book in England that had King Henry VIII's doodles in it. So you went back, you found the book, you thumbed through the book, you found these extra pages. What's the lesson that you learned? So always look at every page. Always look at every page. So what's your takeaway then as a person who studies this? Was he reading the book to review the book? Was the gift to him a book and he was just pointing out things that he liked? Or were it maybe, uh, I, I'm, I'm being a little Hollywood with this, but maybe he was just pointing out things he wanted changed in the book. Have you been able to decipher through that in interpretation of the faith stuff and maybe what what his points were yeah i mean i would say that the if you look at the passages that he's marked up they're not all over the place in fact they're quite concentrated on two main issues 
So they were clearly, so I think it provides just sort of insight into what he was thinking at about at a certain juncture in his life. Now, some of them are in pen and some of them are in ink. So it's clear that he marks the book up on two occasions, but he's interested in two things. One of them is he's anxious about his physical suffering. So he puts two manicules beside passages that are about physical suffering. So one of them, I'll just read this. It's, he marks up this passage, take away thy plagues from me, for thy punishment hath made me both feeble and faint. Hmm. Now we know this is really interesting. And another one is about like, stop punishing me, turn your anger away from me. So this is really interesting because we know that he was very ill at the end of his life, right? The entire time that he's married to Parr, he has a rotting leg, basically. He's been injured. Um, his legs are in such bad shape that he's, you know, he's in a war aligned with the Holy Roman Emperor at that moment. And they don't even want him to go in person because they're complaining that he has the worst legs in the world. Hmm. So, and he refused to acknowledge this at court, really. No one would talk about his illness. So it's so interesting when you look at these, he's marking passages that are about physical suffering and he's worried that God is punishing him for his sins and he's asking God to heal him. So, you know, it gives us a little glimpse into his mindset. There, those ones aren't surprising. Yeah. Um, the It'd be surprising other... that he had a conscience after all. <laughs> well, yeah, it's sort of interesting to see him, you know, we think of him as being very confident, but, and ruthless and arrogant and tyrannical, but he's obviously here having uncertain bouts of uncertainty in yeah. any case. Yeah. Some um, sort of other... reconciliation on it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the other, the other theme that he's obviously interested in is wisdom. So there are lots of passages where he's asking God to make him wise and he's worried that he's gone on the wrong path. So I'll just read one of those. He says, um, you know, let thy spirit teach me the things that be pleasant unto thee, that I may be led into the straight way out of error, wherein I have wandered over long. Hmm. Right? So, so interesting. He's worried that he's been wandering on the wrong path and he wants God to put him on the right path. Um, again, like, if we think about the last couple of years of his life or the last year of his life, this makes sense. It resonates with his situation. So he knows he's dying. His son is nine. He went to so much effort to try to get male heirs, right? Killing, as you mentioned, several people who were in his way. And, you know, his son is nine. He's not a, he's a minor, so Henry's worried about setting up a regency council. He's probably worried, is he doing it right? Has he structured this regency council correctly? The council itself is riven with factions. So there's the pro more reformist side, and then there's the traditional side, and they all hate each other. Um, and also Protestantism was on the rise in the last couple of years of his life, even though he was, you know, he executed 10 Protestants, I think in the last two years, but so Protestantism is on the rise in spite of his best efforts to, even though he broke from the church of Rome, he's actually theologically Catholic and he hates Protestants. And so maybe he's worried about his religious policies and decisions too, right. And worried that he hasn't, right. He wants God, he wants God to make him wise. So that yeah. Well, it's fascinating to me when you hear, you know, sort of the ordained by God notion of a king, and then mm -hmm. um, at the same time, 
the same thing that we commoners go through at end of life when we start becoming doubtful. We're looking for faithful connection. We are looking for answers. We are looking for forgiveness. We wonder, you know, if we've invested all of our time the right way and maybe some regret. So it's interesting to see that the Almighty ordained by God is still Mm -hmm. sitting there quietly scribbling notes in a book um, that that are resonating with him as he reads it. I mean, that's about as grounding as it gets, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Huh. Okay, so you're walking out of uh, you're walking out of the the Wormsley Library. You've just found all these things. So did you go straight to the pub for a drink, or <laughs> did like I'm curious because you must have been on uh, cloud nine at this point. I mean, I'm, I'm here's what I'm assuming, Micheline. I'm assuming that you're speaking a million miles a minute. You probably call seven people. You are going straight to back whoever you're traveling with, with your partners or by yourself or wherever you were, and that this is. I mean, to me, this would be off the charts discovery and part of, you know, you've invested your life in this. This is the path you've chosen. And here it is for you. That must have been remarkable. Yeah, yeah. It was very exciting. And I was in I was in the UK on sabbatical with my family. So I'm sure that, yeah, they heard lots about this. Um, But, you know, the thing is, Henry didn't sign the book. Some of his books he signed, many Mm -hmm. of them he didn't. And so, I mean, I was ecstatic, but I also realized it was going to be challenging exciting but challenging to really prove that they were henry's mm-hmm. so i spent a lot of time um you know because when i saw the and i even had to sort of um pull back a bit like take a deep breath and say i think they're henry's they look like henry's to me but i also you know i didn't have images from the british library with me right so you know then i was like i have to take a deep breath they i have to admit that maybe like, or I have to accept that they might not be Henry's. Like I need to embark on a project to prove this. So I spent a lot of time, as you can imagine, (laughs) in the years after that. So I took hundreds of pictures of manicules at the British Library that people agreed were Henry's. And then I just compared them very rigorously to the ones in the Wormsley Library. So like the size is the same, the placement on the page is the same. It's really interesting. So the right margin i mean like say you found a marking even of yours i don't know if you would recognize your own markings in a book is your style i I think so yeah probably you know the way i shape an arrow or color in the arrowhead the way that i circle things um certainly the way that i initial things yeah Yeah, i'm kind of a double underline guy you know i think you would recognize it (laughs) Right. So what I had to do was prove that, you know, the ones in the Wormsley were the same as the ones in these other places. So you start to notice these these similarities. So the every all the little hands that he drew in the right margin are all angled downwards at about 35 degrees. Really interesting. Right. I I was measuring. I had protractors and all this kind of stuff. Um, (laughs) That is very nerdy of you. I will give you credit. Well done. (laughs) The ones in the uh, left hand margin point upwards. It's interesting. So the ones in this always pointed down and these ones always pointed up. And I think it had to do with just the way he drew it. If you're right handed, that makes sense because that's kind of the way your hand naturally goes. Yeah. I'm trying to pretend right now to do it. Interesting. Yeah, and to the go the other way is backwards for my right hand. Yeah, yep. So, yep. So that's how that's how we did them. Um, and then there's this really distinctive, um, like around where his wrist would be. Um, if you look online, like some of those ones you saw, uh, people often drew these sort of elaborate cuffs, like yeah. right at the wrist of the manicule. So his is very distinctive. It's like two lines that always curve towards the left, and then they meet in a point. 
And unfortunately, in the Wormsley volume, at some point, probably in the 19th century, the book was cropped a bit. People used to do this. They would crop the pages. I don't really know why. But so some of the cuffs have been cropped. Like, they're just not there anymore. The pages were narrowed. But the ones in the left-hand side, you can actually, there's some really good cuffs. Um, and then the size. So I measured the size of them. And yeah, so then 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 I could really celebrate one side. Um, wow. Come to the conclusion that they're Henry's. That's yeah. cool. Um, that is yeah. cool. It's so neat um, to see that, you know, I guess the reality of it all, um, personality of it all, and to yeah, find evidence yeah. of it and be able to verify it as best you probably can. Um, that's neat. Do you think that this sets uh, a bit of a, a tone forward, a, a kick a ball down a hill, I guess, of trying to discover things? And I mean, I suppose that you can well, never thumb through a book again without looking at all the pages now. <laughs> Lesson learned, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. And, um, you know, over the years, I've found lots of stuff about different women writers that people didn't know about before, or I found new data. I've, I've always loved working in archives and um you know trying to find new things this obviously you know this is the top yeah <laughs> I, mean, I, I doubt i'll ever find something quite this exciting again um but you know there's always i mean it just shows you that there's always new stuff to learn and that it's you know the the other thing i was going to say when you asked me what's the sort of takeaway from this um I just want to add one more thing because that's it, the thing that's actually the most important to me as a scholar who works on women um, is that certainly these show us something about Henry, right? Obviously, that's what we've been talking about. But they also tell us something new about his relationship to Parr, mm. right? Because if you take a step back and just even look at the book to go back to your question, right? How many women were writers? Well, how many Queens were even writers? Yeah. So um, Parr, like I mentioned, is unusual of all of the Queens and having written books. So when you think about what a Queen did, Queens were very busy. It's interesting to think about Camilla too, like what's her role as the Queen consort, right? The Queen who's married to the King. So. Yeah. In the Renaissance, the number one job was to have babies, as many heirs as possible. But, you know, queens also, you know, entertained, they ran the household, they patronized lots of authors, they read books, they were usually educated, but they didn't write books, right? So, and so Parr is really unusual in being an intellectual, translating this book from Latin, uh, you know, and publishing her works. Um, then when you look at the content of the book a little bit even more closely, I haven't mentioned this yet, but it's actually, so it's a prayer book, you know, and it asks God for help and wisdom and stuff, but it's also mostly about uh, the war. So Henry was at war when this book was published, and a lot of these prayers are asking God after giving the person wisdom, the speaker asked God to destroy his enemies, Mm -hmm. So, so that adds another dimension, right? So Henry, so Parr has written this book to advance Henry's military agenda. So mm -hmm. again, that tells us something interesting about Henry and his attitude towards Parr. Not only does he allow her to publish books, but it's almost like he probably enlisted her yeah. 
to publish this book, which would help his war effort because it's, you know, it's all these prayers are asking God to help Henry and to destroy Henry's enemies. Mm. So, you know, like when you go back to the, what you started with, like off with your head, it's absolutely true that Henry treated his other wives horribly during long periods of time. Yep. Um, you know, he got rid of wives who couldn't produce heirs for him. But in this instance, we see him, you know, valuing his wife for her intellectual skills. Yeah. For well, it seems to be a bit of a reconciliation of, I mean, because there was the one wife that he, that was the whole divorce. That was the whole um, Catholic church thing was yeah, for yeah. that because he liked her, but he just needed a baby. And so he, that's he the one he divorced baby. and sent away. And then, but at, it's interesting to see maybe the context of the notes that you read to us. And I'm only speculating as a, you know, a non, non-professional here, but um, that maybe he got to the point where he found someone who sort of saved him and helped him reconcile all of it. Um, yeah. And he yeah. trusted that person, right? Maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, just when you're holding the book and you see Henry's coat of arms and this deluxe gift copy, it's like he valued his wife's intellectual skills. He got her to write this book for him that's about his war. Then they made gift copies to give out, which is like showing everyone what a brilliant wife he has and mm-hmm. polit- you know, that she's she's part of the political machinery of the crown. But then, as you said, then he turns to it for his own personal soul searching at the end of his life. Um, you know, it, so it, it just just seeing the book and then the annotations, right? So he obviously treasured this book that she'd written. He used it for his sort of spiritual accounting. Um, And I almost kind of think one of the things I talk about in my article, it's a little bit fanciful, but I sort of like the idea of Henry give, Kapar giving this book to Henry. But I also like to think of the of the annotations as maybe it's kind of a gift back to Par, right? Showing her how much he valued her book. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, the fact that he even read it, I would say, could even say that, right? Yeah, that he read yeah. it and that he used it and that he left he left markings for other people to see. We're going to find a way to share the article because all things meta says we can't, but we're going to try and find a way to do exactly that. Um, Canadian professor found King Henry VIII's doodles after 500 years and Micheline White. Congratulations on the find on your work. It's so interesting. It makes me even more curious about that time. And um, and this is really cool. Thank you for sharing this time with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It was fun. This is The Shift Podcast. System breach. What just happened? Someone hacked me. All right, Hank the Hacker is here. He's a white hat hacker. They do security testing, all those kinds of things. And Hank, um, it is doesn't escape me that we are still talking about Facebook the most when we talk about access to people and people getting tricked. Is that a fair ball for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I don't like it. Neither. Yeah. Honestly, I, I constantly... Facebook is the first one I think of when when I think of privacy and data concerns. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we're sort of on the same page. I mean, 
Is it really Facebook? Is it a lack of uh, policing on Facebook? Uh, you've spoken with the lack of customer service on Facebook. Oh, which reminds me, remind me to that whole, remember that document you sent about recovering your, your Facebook thing that you sent? Yep. Remind me to bring that up before we're done today. Everybody save me. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so I shared with you uh, a picture. Were you surprised by the picture? I'll explain it in a second, but were you surprised by what that picture asserted? You know, I'm, I'm not. And I, I mean, I was a little bit surprised by the story behind the picture and, and kind of the lengths people will go to, to kind of hoodwink someone into interacting with a post. But that's exactly it. People, the way that they interact online and, you know, I'm, I'll even go ahead and throw Twitter and Instagram and whatnot in there. Um, it it tends to be the same everywhere, but Facebook is one of the worst at policing things in terms of, um, you know, modifying a post and then changing it later on once it's garnered a bit of a following. So you can do that. You can edit a post afterwards. So you could go on and start a fight and say, this world is flat and then have all these people that come on and say, the world is round. You're an idiot. And then you could actually go in and change your post and say, the world is round. And everyone who agrees with me is just argumentative. And then yeah, all of a absolutely. sudden, all of the comments right afterwards are they people look bad or out of context. And that's what this particular image that I sent Hank looked like. It was a picture of a big St. Bernard and his big, fat, fluffy head. And it said this dog had been hit by a car, essentially what it was. It was posted to Facebook, and it just said, hey, this dog, um, looking for help, found this dog on the side of the road. Uh, it had been hit by a car in a hit and run. It goes on to say uh, where the county where it was found. I took him to the vet, and he's not chipped. I know someone is looking for him. He definitely misses his family. I'll continue to take care of him in the meantime. Please bump this post to help me find his owner, prayer hands. And so what do people normally do while they would share it in their community or whatever? And some of the comments here is what got me. It says, this is a scam. This is what they do because after you share the post about the dog and now it's on your timeline, they will completely change the post from the dog into, say, and add to their porn link or whatever the scammy mcscammers and things going on do i have that right oh absolutely they'll even in some cases you know they'll and and the key part in that post that really caught my eye uh, right away was please bump this post yeah and so you know where someone is usually going to post if if they posted about a dog that um, you know, God forbid, got lost or something. If if they were posting, they probably wouldn't ask you to bump it because it, yeah. it's just something that'll happen naturally. But um, they'll even delete the comments afterwards so that uh, you have like a fresh post. Now it's it you know it's garnered five thousand likes and a few hundred shares, and it's all over the place. And now the comments are actually completely empty. So they can change the ad from this lost dog post into, oh, we've got this this Milwaukee drill set for 20 bucks. Um, and people start to actually fall for it because it looks like it's already got a lot of reputation or a lot of trust built behind it already anyways. 
So what they're doing is they're essentially tricking everybody. Um, and I mean, what I can do, and I know this just from the, our Facebook group, right? I can go through and I can delete someone's comments. And I don't know if it notifies everybody if I delete a comment. I know it does. If say somebody breaks a rule, right? Sometimes, sometimes people accidentally break a rule. They post something that they don't really think is very political, but it is quite political. Um, and uh, there was a couple of great examples where someone just basically went on a rant and then included Justin Trudeau in their rant. And then so we removed it and sent him a message and said, hey, look, you're welcome to have your opinion. Just take out the Trudeau part and then don't make it political. And they did. They just reposted it and did it that way. But I can go through and I can delete comments. I can delete all those things if we wanted to. So I could, you're telling me that if somebody posts this fluffy, big, fat St. Bernard head dog, it gets shared a hundred, 200 times. I can go through and I can delete all the comments off it, turn off the comments, and then, you know, try to sell a, a scam drill as to your example. And nobody would be the wiser. It's already in their feeds. That's, and the scarier thing here and something that, you know, there's privacy settings you can, you can use to make sure that this isn't as, as scary, but, um, there's even bots on Facebook that, um, you know, they kind of, they, they support these scams and the way that they support these scams is, uh, it's a fake account. It's run by a computer. It's not a real account, but, when they see a post that, you know, they've switched the description or the content of the post into, I'm selling something, then bots can actually start coming on the post and they'll comment saying, oh, this is, this is a great purchase or a great company. Yeah, um, a great seller. Yeah. And it sounds so wild and I, I thought it did too, but I, I actually tested this a couple of weeks ago. I put on my Facebook, I just made a simple Facebook post that said, uh, I just want to test something. And then it, it was a list of, of kind of phrases. I want to buy, I've been hacked, I need help. Um, I want to buy cryptocurrency. Like So it was a bunch of uh, phrases. And I actually got a ton of replies on that Facebook post by bots completely fake accounts and it was really funny for me and my friends because everyone looking at the facebook post could obviously tell that the bots were coming and, and taking the bait and kind of exposing themselves if you will um it i mean i wouldn't suggest anyone else try that but it definitely is an entertaining test Okay, now you bring it up perfectly to what we went through. When you when we did that piece on Summer of Cyber Safety a few weeks ago, ago about getting locked out of your account and various scams to get back into your account, and there was some documents that we could do, I actually didn't share that document on purpose because when we talked about it and it turned into a thread on the Shifthead Facebook page at shiftheads.ca, we probably, Ryan, remember I messaged you, I was away, and I messaged you and said, by the way, you're probably going to see a bunch of these. I've already deleted about 20 or 30 of them. We, we had both sides of it, people saying it was scammy and, you know, don't trust that guy, trust this guy, go to this Instagram account. They will help you recover your Facebook account. And we probably got hit. I'm going to guess about 40 people trying to comment on our Facebook group on various posts because we talked about it and it made it on, on our, our comments into the, um, into the Facebook group that we just talked about getting hacked and getting your Facebook 
uh, page back or whatever. It was it had to be forty or fifty, Ryan. I don't know if you remember the number, but because you did a bunch, you deleted a bunch, and I deleted a bunch. Yeah, it was around that. Yep. Yeah, a lot. Oh wow. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. That's that's exactly what my test was. I just put on my on my own account on just a couple yeah. of random things, and they just started biting like crazy. How many bots do you think are running inside um, inside the marketplace? Oh, thousands, thousands yeah. easily. And that, you know, it, it doesn't just go within the marketplace. It's even people that are trying to promote their YouTube channel or promote, um, you know, an Instagram channel or like you said earlier, promote a certain porn link. Uh, so it, well, it really does go everywhere. Of <laughs> All of a sudden out of the blue. We've got three or four of those that, that have come up, which we haven't had in probably a year on the Facebook group. Um, so let me ask you this then. I mean, this is might just be so speculative. It's not even possible, but the inside, inside all of this was, um, you know, people all of a sudden you get these messages, you know, is this available? Hey, is this available? And then I've had people come back and say, Hey, I didn't even send this message because I'll reply back. Yes, it is. And it's almost like, and this is me totally speculating. If, if you get, hey, is this available, and you just click the yes, it's available auto-reply, it's almost like it doesn't go to the person. But if you custom write it, it sends them a message. And then they'll message you back saying, sorry, I don't know what happened. I didn't send you that. So to me, it seems like there's bots that are trying to hook people into the activity of, hey, you got a message. Someone's interested in buying your frying pan. And, uh, and it just keeps you interactive on there and keeps you posting more, commenting more on things. Um, it, that's probably pretty standard fare in this whole, we have access to give you alerts on your phone world of programming, wouldn't it be? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's something that goes on constantly. Anything that they can get their hands on really, uh, in, in the end is, is valuable. And, um, I, I, I just quickly use the Timu shopping app as an example. Um, all the data that we're sharing and, um, even if it isn't a bot collecting this data, it's 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 fairly. I, I would say it's it's really alarming, and um, for Facebook in particular, you know, while we see Elon Musk getting so upset about bots on Twitter, um, they're not really doing anything about bots on Facebook, and uh, we see a little bit too much data and privacy breaches in terms of uh, things with different shopping apps. And uh, again, I, I, I mentioned Timu. <laughs> yeah, well, we were talking about Timu um, last night on the shift because of the fact that, it, you know, they shop like a billionaire. It's basically Wish Part 2. and um, But it is an app and it is a Chinese company. And again, much like TikTok, when you have that app on your phone, it's reading your text messages, I'm sure, just like TikTok is. It's reading all your things. I get re references on, uh, I don't have, TikTok doesn't access my contacts. But at the same time, I, there's people that I know from 20, 25 years ago that are saying, do you know this person? So it must be reading my Facebook or it must be reading those other people somewhere. Well, that that's exactly it. Is they'll, like, if you use these other apps, and the reason I mentioned Timo is because if you're using Facebook Marketplace and you're in a bunch of different groups on Facebook, and you're also using Timu and, and whatever else, Shein um, is another one. If, if you're shopping on these, they're actually collecting your shopping behavior online as well. 
And so it wouldn't be. And, and there's even times or cases where apps can send a message or trigger a message or notification without your interaction. Um, so it wouldn't be completely unlikely for one of these apps or um, even a malicious bot, for example, to be able to trigger a message and then wait for some kind of interaction. And I always tell people a pretty good way of ba- like measuring your um, susceptibility to being hacked is just your interaction. Your level of interaction on the internet kind of determines how susceptible you are. So if you're doing um, lots of things and you're sharing lots of information, uh, then the likelihood that um, you become breached is is much higher than someone that doesn't interact as much. Hmm. Um, okay, well, there you go. There's some great reminders about how much that apps do read from your stuff. And, um, you know, be careful what you be careful what you wish for. Uh, or Timu for in this particular case. Very well done. Um, okay, so when we first met Hank, you were on Dr. Phil, and you were on Dr. Phil because you had um, hacked into some various securities. Now, you were doing it not to get into anybody's personal business or personal stuff, but you were trying to do businesses where leaked information was online, and you were trying to let people know what had happened. Turned out, um, I believe it was a realtor, if I remember this correctly, it's been a minute, that had also used their business name, tax scammy, holy cow, to um, <laughs> to have their uh, security at home sort of under their business name, you know, sort of work from home, air quotes. You scared the crap out of the poor dude. Uh, but that's how you got in. You just found the information online. You're like, hey, by the way, your information's online. You need to make sure that you change your info. I'm paraphrasing for time. Now, one of the things that's come out of Kelowna with all these fires is people are watching their neighborhoods burn from ring doorbells and they're able yeah. to look at their security cameras differently. As long as the power is still there, or the internet's still there and some of those services are still on, they're able to see the status of their stuff, good or bad uh, that we can see this because I mean, good that they can see that their houses are still there or okay. But I imagine, you know, bad because you could see that the houses across the street may be burning is, are we, are we getting too much info now with some of these things? What do you think? You know, I was right about to say if um, I went on Shodan the other day and Shodan is kind of like Google, but for the Internet of Things, anything that's connected to the Internet is likely displayed on Shodan somewhere. And this includes webcams or cameras. So if if you go on Shodan right now, or obviously if you, you know how to use Shodan and you go on Shodan right now, um, you can see all of the webcams and cameras in and around Kelowna and BC that uh, actually have a live view of this. And so it, it's it's startling because you'll see cameras that um, they were online yesterday, but they're not online today. And hmm. these are obviously in areas where the evacuation was happening much earlier than other areas. But uh, yeah, it's very startling that you know, in in the middle of such a a serious event, uh, you you can still see all this data coming out, and um, yeah, I hope everyone is okay over there. Yeah, isn't that the case? Um, uh, I think everybody would very much agree with that. Um, but at the same time, it does kind of speak to maybe the good, and that you can see if the fire's coming. Maybe that's not good for us to watch. 
um, you know, maybe these are some of these, these bits and pieces that we need to, you know, maybe be a little bit more aware of, but it sure is interesting to see where the technology takes us and where it gets us a little bit more excited. I think if that's the word, but at the same time, it's nice to be able to get a good deal on buying something online, but at the expense of what, you know, are they taking, if, if I go and I agree, like you have to understand, put this on context. I mean, all four of us here on this zoom call and on this radio show right now, I have your personal information in my phone, right? Like I've got Jono's number. I've got his email address. I've got that info. Um, you know, I've got Ryan O'Donnell's info, you know, his shoe size, everything. Birthdays are on there, guys. I save your birthdays in there. Hank, your stuff is in there too. And if I go and I sign up for TikTok and I allow them access to my contacts, I have now given them all of your info. And now they have that. And we, we're yeah. not, we're, we don't talk about that part. You know, would you want to be my friend anymore if I was recklessly sharing your crap? Like, by the way, uh, they know your mom and her maiden name and your birthday because of my contact card. That's legit, right, Hank? I, you know, I, I hate to say this, but I'm immediately thinking of like a Chinese social credit rating. But in terms of how safe are your friends to be friends with online? Yeah. And... That's very I, big brother of you, mind you. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I immediately jumped to, and, and because you're saying when things become discounted or when things are free, you generally tend to be the product. And um, so some things, like there's some steps that you can do if you do have to use Timu uh, or other apps like that for shopping. Um, again, I'll repeat this all the time, but two-factor authentication and VPNs. Um, but especially for shopping apps, I would I would consider picking up uh, a prepaid credit card. And and like Shane said, I think last week or the week before, you don't have to be entirely truthful about the information you're giving these apps when you sign up. It's okay to say your name is Bob, for example. Oh, I say my name is Shine, actually. <laughs> And then I always know if I get an email that's addressed to Shine, I know where it's coming from, right? It's yeah. coming from something that I signed up for. So uh, I have a friend of mine that does that. They do that when they sign up, say, for, I don't know, but what's something you've signed up for? Say Spotify, right? They'll put, you know, Hank Spotify hyphen Fordham. Yep. Right? I immediately then if thought you, of him when I saw yeah. Timu. I was like, he's, he's sad. Right? Yeah. And so it's, it's, so when those things come up, then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, I know where this is coming from because it says literally where it got hacked in the thing. All right. If you have any questions for Hank, you can get them at shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group. Uh, don't worry. We won't be sharing them and rechanging them and <laughs> tricking you. Um, we're, we, we're good there. That's all covered, but you can ask your questions. Summer of cyber safety does continue next week. We'll be back at the same time, same place. Thanks so much, Hank. Yes, sir. Thank you. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you? Are you? Are you? Okay. 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 Are you okay with? Share your thoughts. 877-399-9898. First one is, are you okay with? Brian said that he loves KD, but doesn't put ketchup on it. This text comes in. I add a dollop of cheese whiz to my KD. You okay with that? Uh, um... Look, coming from a guy who just ate a cheese whiz bagel, uh, I don't think I'd put that on my KD. That's it's Ooh. already saucy enough. I don't need to add that to it. 
Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Very picky. Resolved. Are you okay with Fire Festival? Oh, remember that one? Oh, I remember that. It was one of the dark times for my generation when the uh, thousands of millennials were fooled into thinking that they had tickets to see the coolest music festival ever. And then they showed up and it was a living nightmare where it was a giant scam. You know, we all fell for cool images and celebrity endorsements. It was like a total cultural reset point for on a bunch of stuff. And while I love the documentaries about fire festival and, you know, kind of recounting the story of it, Everything that festival stands for is the worst parts of my generation. Hmm. Yeah. Bold. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a festival. It was a fraudulent luxury music festival with Con Otter's Bailey McFarland. He got himself in big trouble with that. Rapper Joe Rule was part of it, too. It was created with the intent of promoting the company's Fire app for booking music talent. These festival goers were going to arrive in Bahamas back in 19, uh, 2017. And they were met with a mess of broken accommodations, no music guests, a stage that didn't work, and basically cheese on toast for their amazing gourmet meals. Now, McFarland served nearly four years in prison on fraud-related charges to do with the initial fire festival in 2017 because he had investors that gave him money to put it all together. And yet, the same guy has announced there will be a fire fest too. And on Tuesday, McFarland claimed the first 100 Fire Festival 2 tickets had been purchased. And I think this kind of all comes back to since 2016, Fire has had 32 billion impressions across social media, which makes us like the most talked about festival in the world. And we saw that in the past literally 36 hours convert to sales. Um, no lineup announced. We did not share the location and we saw that the first drop almost instantly. So it is just so incredible to finally have the support to make the fire dream a reality and to really share it with the world. Okay. Well, actually, he really had that opportunity the first time when he stole yeah. all the money. Yeah. So yeah. it all started. He used the money to bring influencers and famous people on boats and yachts and throw parties. And they did all these social media posts. And people bought into it, man. They really did. They just they bought into it and bought their tickets. Now, it turns out Fire Festival 2 website advertises six other upcoming ticket presales. So they're creating this sort of drop on demand thing with prices ranging from $799 US, that's about 1080 bucks Canadian, to $7,999 US, almost $11,000 Canadian. Now, McFarland said all ticket sale revenue will be held in escrow until the date of the fire festival is announced. Until the date is announced. It's the key part of that statement. Mm-hmm. On top of launching Fire Festival 2, McFarland also claimed to have a documentary and a Broadway musical about Fire Festival currently in the works. Exactly what everybody was hoping for. You know the best part about the musical? If they did a musical on the Fire Festival, if what? they handed out slices of bread with cheese on it as a free intermission snack. I would imagine there's an entire musical number where someone's dressed up as a piece of toast with cheese on it. Like a fever dream. And then they wake up and it's a, a real dream. Yeah. People didn't know how they were going to get back from the island. The, there, there was no plan. And then they just got them drunk to keep them all like, you know, have fun. It's fine. It's chill. They had no Ooh. food, no sewage. It was, if you haven't seen the documentary fire, watch it. 
it will make you shake your head in ways you never thought it could shake. The text that says he bought the tickets himself. And that's a good point. And I, I would. It is possible. It's yep. possible that he put the post tickets up and he went and purchased the tickets himself just so he could say that the tickets sold out. I mean, I know, I know authors that do that, right? Of course. Yeah. It's also the authors go and they post the book up and then they go back to their, their mailing list or whatever. They're like, pre-buy my book. And they'll, if, you know, if they've got 9,900, they'll go buy a hundred copies of their own book just to put it over 10,000 become number one. Like you can actually buy your way to be the number one bestseller. You got enough money. That's just sad. Don't go to Fire Festival too. Okay, there you go. Listen to Ryan. He's got good advice for you there. Um, Let's do let's do this one real quick here. Are you okay with double doubles? Double doubles. Uh, I don't put any milk or sugar. Yeah, I don't do that. Just black or a latte. No double Mm -hmm. double for me. All right, Uh, cream for me. That's about it. Uh, Two is always better than one, right? Two for get the two for one. It's always a deal. Of course. Two tacos for the price of one. Taco Tuesday. Mm. Cleanup is underway in Southern California after Tropical Storm Hillary soaked several cities, being the first such weather system to hit the state in over eight decades. The uh, images of the storm are kind of wild, including a massive flood surrounding Dodger Stadium, all kinds of just runaway water because it doesn't soak up anywhere. And then just because you can't have nice things in California, they were hit with an earthquake at the same time. In San Diego, nearly a dozen people experiencing homelessness had to be rescued from an encampment in a normally dry riverbed. Our swift water rescue teams, our lifeguards and firefighters had to go out into that river. And then things got worse. Just as Los Angeles felt Hillary's power, a 5.1 earthquake shook the city. Like the storm, the moderate quake rattled nerves. The Los Angeles Fire Department so far has reported no damage or injuries in the city. Okay, well, that's good news. But compared to previous earthquakes, the earthquake on Sunday was relatively moderate. 6.7 quake hit northern Los Angeles neighborhood in 1994. At least 125 times more energy than that one, just to be clear. But if you're worried about the storm and all the rain and then all of a sudden rumble, rumble goes to the ground, Greg Fish talked about it with us. Um, yeah, because that's just, the, it just seems to be the world today. Um, two at once. My goodness. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.